Good morning. June of uh, 1940, the German armies overran France. They uh, occupied the whole country, set up their own puppet government in Vichy. But the real government of France was led by Charles de Gaulle from London, from England, not even on French soil. Large numbers of French men and women continued to give their allegiance to that French government, to de Gaulle, take orders from de Gaulle, waiting for the time that he would be returned to his uh, proper rule, never doubting that he would. These uh, men and women of the French resistance were totally dedicated, willing to give absolutely anything to help their allies. I mean, their, their immediate commitment, their absolute total willingness to sacrifice is uh, inspiring. An American pilot was shot down over, over uh, France. They immediately go into action, getting them clothes, food, money, all from a society that was, was terribly destitute, oppressed, poor. They would smuggle them out of the country at great risk to their own lives. And you see, the, the, the commitment to this fugitive pilot was not contingent on the personality of the pilot, whether they liked him or not. It was completely based on the fact they shared a common goal, a common cause, a common purpose and hope, the return of the, the proper government of France. Now, this kind of commitment, this kind of dedication is exciting. It's inspiring, attractive. You see, we, too, wait for the return of our proper government, of our king. We live in a world that is uh, occupied by the enemy. We uh, are learning to live in and operate a Christian underground. Now, our weapons and our strategies are radically different than the French underground because our opponent is, is radically different. Our battles are spiritual, but our commitment, our dedication is no less. If you remember last week, we talked about the fact that the book of Luke was leading up to a real turning point, the identification of who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the unique Son of God, the one we are to follow. And as soon as that was articulated, as soon as the disciples identified who He was, immediately Jesus begins to teach them what that means. He tells them, says that He was going to Jerusalem to suffer, to die, to be raised again. And, and He immediately starts plans to go to Jerusalem. Well, that's where we are in the book of Luke, chapter 9. Jesus is uh, heading for Jerusalem. His attention is moving to Jerusalem. But on the way, he needs to train his disciples as the leaders of the Christian underground, the leaders of the new kingdom. He's teaching them, training them. You see, it is true that the church of Jesus Christ is the underground government of the world. We are the Christian underground. We are the, the resistance to the world's way. We are 
the underground government of the world, God's cadre, the shock troops for the Lord. Now, what comes to your mind when I start talking that way? You start getting images of weapons trading in the foothills and terrorist bombs, wondering if we're going to take sign-ups for the militia in the back. We aren't. We're not going to do any of these things. But you see, that confusion is understandable. That's probably not too far from what the disciples were thinking when Jesus would talk uh, about the new kingdom, about his plans for it. And that's exactly why Jesus immediately has to start teaching them, has to start training them. He has to start breaking down their image uh, of what it means to to follow him, breaking down their ideas of of the ways of the kingdom and replace them with the ways of the cross. What we're going to be doing for the next several weeks, um, because this is what's going on in the next several chapters, is exactly that. We're going to be breaking down our ideas of what it means to follow Jesus, our ideas of of the kingdom, our distorted ways of, uh, of seeking Him, and then let Him teach us, let Him train us in His way. See, last week we talked about the way of the cross. And as we work through Luke, we're going to run into the way of the kingdom. You need to know that these are exactly the same. These are synonymous. And really, they're both just other ways of talking about the way of Jesus. It's His way. It's it's Him who we are following. It's His kingdom we are seeking. So we need to learn from Him what that really is, what that really looks like. So that's what we're going to do. Let's get into our passage in Luke 9, verse 37. At first, this may seem like a bunch of unrelated uh, stories and sayings. We're going to be looking at probably five or six. Actually, I think there may even be seven stories. So we're going to obviously move fairly rapidly. But what I want to do is look at each of these stories, understand it, but then see how this fits in the, the training the, 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 the reorientation that Jesus is doing for his disciples and then for us. So turn with me, Luke 9, verse 37. Let's learn about following Jesus. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at at what Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. Okay, Jesus and James, John, and Peter come down the mountain. You know, talk about a mountaintop experience. They had just been up there with Moses and Elijah. 
They had just heard the voice of God directly from the Shekinah, from, from the cloud. I mean, what an experience. I'm sure it was unsettling to the disciples, but still, what an experience. And for Jesus, what a joy and, and, and affirmation. But now they come down the mountain. And as is so often the case when we come down the mountain, frustrating everyday life is waiting. They get down there, and there's this crowd of people, all kind of arguing, shouting, all upset. And right in the middle of the crowd, probably more confused and upset than the rest are the disciples. And this man cries out from the the crowd, says, Jesus, help me. Help my son. He wants Jesus to, to cast the demon out of his only son. He wants Jesus to help his son who was so oppressed by the enemy. See, this man had brought his son to the disciples, and, and they couldn't get rid of the demon. And that's why the confusion, that's why they're so upset, because they should have been able to do this. They'd done it before. At the beginning of this chapter, Jesus gave them authority over demons and sent them out. And they went all over the country casting out demons and healing. So this was, this was not new stuff. This was old stuff. But it didn't work for some reason this time. And then Jesus' response, Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. That word perverse means warped, crooked. So how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. You know, Jesus sounds genuinely frustrated. It's good to know that even he got frustrated, yet uh, without sin. He doesn't blow up at him. He doesn't just write him off, say, forget you guys, I'm tired of this, and walk away. Now he stays engaged with them. He teaches them. He continues to love them, even as he's correcting, teaching them. It's not wrong for us to get frustrated, but we don't have to sin. We don't have to blow up and slash and cut and hurt. We need to stay engaged, work it through, talk it through, keep moving. But anyway, why is Jesus so frustrated? And who is he frustrated at, the, 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 this man or the disciples? And why couldn't the disciples cast this demon out? Well, first of all, I think Jesus is frustrated at everybody. I mean, this was a mess. In, in Mark's account, it's very clear that this man not only was disappointed in the disciples, but he was irritated at Jesus because the disciples couldn't handle the situation. He had let his disappointment in the disciples shake his faith, his trust in Jesus. Now, we often, unfortunately, do this. We've got a problem, we've got a need, and we come to other believers, and they let us down. And it happens. And sadly, that uh, disappointment can be bitter. And unfortunately, too often, We allow that disappointment to shake our faith, our trust in Jesus. So maybe Jesus is frustrated at this man because of uh, of his lack of of trust in him. But the people that I I think he is most frustrated with, that it's really clear he's frustrated with, is the disciples. I mean, they are trying to handle this situation themselves. They are insisting on handling themselves. They're not the ones that turn to Jesus and ask His help. The man turns to Jesus. I see, I think the disciples are letting themselves get in the way. Either they were afraid to ask for Jesus' help, 
or they were just determined to take care of it themselves. They refused to admit that they couldn't handle it. Well, why couldn't they handle it? Like I said, they'd done this before, lots of times. And they're probably doing it exactly the same way they'd done it before. In fact, maybe they were even arguing about their technique. You see, the problem was not bad technique. The problem was bad faith. And this is often misunderstood. The problem with the disciples' faith, their lack of trust, was not that they just didn't believe hard enough that it would happen. They had every expectation that it would happen. It had happened before. They expected it to happen. You see, they aren't faith healers. You just believe hard enough and it'll come to be. The problem was where their faith was. See, when Jesus had sent them out before, He gave them His authority. He sent them out in His name. And they went out trusting Him, who He is, His authority. Somehow with time and repetition, that had mutated into a a trust in, in a technique, in a method, or even worse, a trust in their own ability, their own authority. See, the the attention had shifted from Jesus and His ability in the face of their dependence to their own competence, independent of trusting Him, of of depending on Him. And that can happen so easily. When when we're doing something that, that no longer scares us, I mean, we've done it enough that we're used to it by now. We don't feel our desperate dependence on God. We begin to take it fairly casually. We begin to trust the way we did it before. The techniques we're developing. Our own skill and experience. When we do that, we are no longer walking in faith. We have bad faith. The problem is with our faith. We we, we stop Remembering even to pray. We stop spending time in the Word to discover what God says about this type of situation. Getting our instructions from the Word. And when this happens, we find ourselves powerless. We may put on a good show. We may appear completely competent. But we are powerless to to see anyone freed from the domain of the enemy. To have any profound spiritual effect. This applies when you're teaching a Sunday school class, leading a Bible study or growth group. But this also applies every bit as much when you're disciplining your children. Or when you're having just a conversation with your spouse. When you're spending time just enjoying your friends. See, it doesn't need to be anxiety producing for us to need the Lord. We need Him. Every bit as much uh, for these um, seemingly insignificant conversations as we do for those times, those situations that send adrenaline coursing our system. See, the amount of stomach acid produced should not be the index of how much we need the Lord. We need Him all the time in every situation. If we really want to love each other, if we really want to have a spiritual impact on people, we need Him all the time. The way of the cross is letting go of our independent competence. Learning to trust Him for every situation, every area 
of our life. And learning that is the start of our basic training. I notice one more thing in, in this section that I read before we move to the next one. Look closely at verses 43 and 44. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Literally, stick this in your ear. That was an idiom in that culture for, let this one get in. Think about it. Let this one penetrate. He said, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now, how come Jesus says that? How does that fit what he's talking about? You know, I'm following him. And all of a sudden he throws this in. Where does that come from? How does that have anything to do with what's happening here? Well, it's because, again, the disciples are putting their attention in the wrong direction. They're impressed with the impressive. They're saying, look, he cast out this demon. Whoa, that's, that's incredible. That's amazing stuff. That's great. And Jesus says... No, it's not. I cast the demon out, out of my compassion for this man, out of my love for this boy. But the way of the cross is not found in the razzle-dazzle. It's not found in the magic show. It's found in my willingness to suffer, to humble myself, to go to my death. See, essentially, he's saying, wake up, you guys. Open your eyes. Get a clue. Figure this out. Glory isn't in the healings. Glory is in my death. The way of the cross is letting go of impressing people, that compulsion to impress people. The thing that, 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 that speaks of His greatness is not the miracles, not the healings. If you're going to be leaders in my underground, you've got to begin to understand The thing that speaks of my greatness is my willingness to humble myself and die. The thing that will speak of your greatness is your willingness to humble yourself and die. Don't get distracted. It's so great to see how quick these disciples catch on and listen to the very next argument. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is great. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. You Immediately, they start arguing about who is the greatest. I mean, Jesus must have just shaken his head. But he is so patient. couple things that I kind of need to point out just to help these disciples out a little bit here. Uh, This, what's going on here is not pure vanity. I mean, there's plenty of vanity in there, but it's not just raw vanity. In that culture, as in many cultures, even today, knowing your, your status, your social standing was very, very important. 
It, it, it helped you understand how you fit in. It, it made society work more smoothly. It, it removed confusion and conflict. In our house, when we sit down to dinner, everyone has a seat. It's, it's not something we have to argue about every night. Everybody just kind of goes to their seat and sits down. It's automatic. It, it's habit. It makes dinner time easier. Well, in these types of societies, knowing where you stand, it makes things easier. You know where you stand. You know where you sit. You know who gets served first. And the disciples, as they were traveling around the country, making arrangements and and going through the process of getting lodging and all of these details, they felt the need to work all this stuff out to remove the tension and the confusion and the hurt feelings. In fact, uh, most Rabbis, most teachers would have ranked their disciples for them just to help them understand all this and, and, and work it all out. We see the same thing in our society, especially in the corporate world, where everybody kind of knows where they stand, or at least they're trying to figure it out all the time. You know, who's boss of whom, who has uh, seniority, who has position. And in the military, it's absolutely essential. You can take two military personnel. They can walk into a room within 10, 20 seconds. They know each other's relative rank, even down to the the number of days in grade if necessary. And that's absolutely essential in military situations that the chain of command be clear and and respected so that confusion is minimized because when they're they're in a, a situation, confusion can endanger lives. And these disciples, they're figuring, you know, we're being organized for the new kingdom. We are being organized for the Christian underground. It's important. It seemed natural to them to want to resolve all this, figure it all out. You notice Jesus doesn't rebuke them, but he doesn't help them out too much either. He kind of reorients them. He doesn't answer that question. He takes a child, puts him in front of them. Now, a child in that society would have been at the bottom of any ranking system. A child has no personal uh, wealth. A child had no influence or prestige. A child was disposable property in that society. You could sell your child. You could kill him. In fact, even in in families where, where they loved their children, there was a lot of reserve until the child reached three or four years old just to see if the child would live long enough to be part of the family. And even in families that, that valued their children, they didn't care too much about other people's children. It's very difficult for us in a society that has been so influenced for so long by Christian values to realize how powerless a child is in many other societies of the world today, how much disregard that they are treated with in other parts of the world and in this society in biblical times. But even today, we wouldn't look to a child for financial advancement. We wouldn't look to a child for power or influence unless you were buttering up their parents for something. See, because a child, even today, can't give you power, wealth, influence, prestige. That's exactly why Jesus brings a child. Because he can't give you any of these things. And true greatness, greatness in the kingdom, is not found by acquiring power and wealth and prestige. Greatness in the kingdom is pursued by serving those who can't give you 
any of these things. Because greatness in the kingdom is a reflection of love, of giving. See, God is love. And God is great. He is the epitome of greatness. He is the definition of greatness. And that's how he treats us. He doesn't look for prestige or power or wealth from us. He places himself under us to serve us, to meet our needs. And that is greatness. So Jesus basically destroys the relevance of the whole ranking system. You know, one thing that this translation doesn't show is that even in his response, even in his answer, Jesus doesn't rank them. This translation says that uh, whoever is lowest or the least among you, he is the greatest. That's not what it actually says. It says whoever is lowest is great. There's no comparison here. There's no competition. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to be great. That's a good thing. But there is something wrong with wanting to be the greatest. Because competition, by its very nature, distorts, distracts, true greatness. By, very, by its very nature, it subverts the path to true greatness because true greatness is pursued by serving, by trying to elevate others, not be over them, not be better than them. True greatness is, is, is pursued by welcoming those around you regardless of their status, by caring, by loving. This has nothing to do with competition. At this point, I uh, wanted to stop my sermon and have all of our nursery care workers come up here. I was talking to Pat about that, but they didn't want to do it. Because that's not why they're ministering. They are serving our babies because they love our Lord. Same with our Sunday school teachers. They're teaching, they're serving our children because they love our Lord. That is true greatness. Same of those who, who, who pray for us faithfully. That's greatness. Now I want you to think about it. Who is great around here? Now I'm the senior pastor. I, I'm on the board of elders. I'm up front a lot. But what does Jesus say? You know, the one that's up front? The one that makes some decisions? In a very real sense, I'm in the least great position here. You think about what Jesus is saying. When I graduated from seminary, I went to work at a home for severely disabled children. Worked there for several years. And though there was plenty of frustration and difficulty there, it was the most delightful job I've ever had. And I have felt that my career has gone downhill ever since. But see, even that doesn't work. Because we can't get into ranking. We abandon the whole concept of ranking. You know, in this position, there is some prestige that the world may attribute to being a pastor. But if I want to pursue greatness, that means what I have to pursue is elevating others, is serving it is seeing that the needs of all of you are met. If I ever begin to pursue honor, prestige, then I am wrong. I am working counter 
to kingdom values. Any influence, any authority I may have needs to be a tool to serve. Never a tool for self-aggrandizement. But realize that is absolutely no different than any of the rest of you. Whatever role you have in the body, whatever opportunity God has given you in this body, if you're using that to promote yourself, you're wrong. You're missing it. Even if you're doing that in the nursery. See, God has you as part of this body to welcome To make those around you feel important and valued. To to not rank them by the the, the cut of their clothes. To not uh, rank them by their, their employment. But to love them. To serve them. To lift them up. See, when you do that, you're being great. That's true of your role at work. You know, whether you uh, are uh, getting a, a, a promotion or a demotion, whether you work in the boardroom or clean the bathroom, those are opportunities to serve. Same thing's true of your role in your family. As a father, you have an opportunity to serve your wife, to serve your children. Or as a wife, to serve your family. Or as a child, to serve your family. That's true of your role in society. Whether you make 12000 or 120000 a year. Whether you are a U.S. senator or couldn't even name your senator. See, ranking is irrelevant. Because greatness is found elsewhere. It's found in serving. In loving. In welcoming. This is uh, vital in understanding our role in the Christian underground. Because all of us want to be great. And we need to understand that greatness is pursued not by blowing up bridges. Not even by shouting down senators and presidents. Greatness is pursued in the kingdom. By quietly, humbly serving in your home in this church, at work, in our community. Anyway, back to our passage. Somehow all of this reminds John of of something that he and the rest of the disciples saw. They were going along and they saw somebody casting out demons in Jesus' name. And so John tells Jesus about this. He says, we tried to stop them. And Jesus says, "Ah, don't stop them. If they're not against you, they're for you. Now, quite honestly, this is probably the most ignored kingdom principle of all time throughout history. Throughout history, Christians have always concluded, if they're not part of my group, they're against me, and I'm against them. See, more Christians have died at the hands of others who call themselves Christian than by all of the pagan persecutions put together. In the chaos that followed the Reformation, there were Catholics killing Protestants and Protestants killing Catholics, Calvinists killing Anabaptists and Presbyterians killing Congregationalists. It was astounding how people who claim to follow the God who is love could treat each other so hatefully. One of my favorite stories of all time is of George Whitfield and Charles Wesley. 
These are two of my minor heroes. Whitfield was a Calvinist. Wesley was an Arminian. These two great men disagreed vehemently, strongly. They uh, saw real danger in what the other taught. In fact, they would speak out strongly against the teaching of the other. At one point, uh, one of uh, Whitfield's followers came up to him. And he said, do you think we'll see Charles Wesley in heaven? Whitfield looked at him very sadly and he said, no, I'm afraid we probably won't. He'll probably be so close to the throne of God and we'll be so far away, we'll just never run into each other. You see, the way of the cross is letting go of this idea that we are the in-group, that we're better, that others are suspect, that others are somehow inferior or evil. It's like the uh, Baptist missionary, South America, prayed, God, how can I work with these Catholics when I don't agree with everything they believe? God answered, well, that's okay, I work with you and I don't agree with everything you believe. (laughs) See, God works with us and he doesn't agree with everything we believe. Now, what we believe is not unimportant, it is very important and some of it is vitally important. And we are constantly in the process of trying to bring what we believe in conformity with what God agrees with, in conformity to the Scripture. We do things the way we do around here at Cole because we think it's right. We think it's, it's what God is teaching, what God is telling us. And we constantly want to examine that. We want to look at, at other churches and other doctrine and examine it and understand it. We want to have the freedom to warn each other of the th- dangers we see in each other's doctrine. But if I don't love, my doctrine is useless. See, it's not that the differences aren't important. It's that there's something more important. Following Jesus. Obeying Him recognizing that my brothers and sisters in Christ are His family, not my competition. They are my allies in the underground. Let's uh, look at the next story. Verse 51. As the time approached for Him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And He sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for Him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Now Jesus is headed straight to Jerusalem to uh, fulfill his mission, to die for our sins. And the quickest way was right through Samaria. But Samaritans hated Jews. They disagreed with the Jews theologically. Now, it wasn't that the Samaritans were just another denomination. They were heretics. They really were. And and they resented the fact that the Jews treated them as heretics. They would be for us like like a cult or or another religion or unbelievers. And, And these people didn't accept Jesus. In fact, they treated him rudely. To not offer hospitality in that culture was a major put-down. And when James and John heard this, man, they were indignant. They were righteously indignant. And they weren't going to stand for this. They were going to stand up for Jesus and hate these people. See them destroyed. 
Now, this kind of uh, misguided loyalty is found too often among us. You know, we see our Lord um, disrespected. We see him slighted in the media or by some government official. And we are incensed. We can't call down fire from heaven, so we give him some fire of our own. We treat him rudely and, and unlovingly. And, and tell ourselves we're doing it for Jesus. But we aren't. That's not what he wants. He wants us to love, to serve, to bless. Now see, our, our indignation, our, our unloving attitudes and actions are because our pride is hurt. Our dignity is damaged. Our prestige is lessened. Our team seems like it's losing. The way of the cross is to let go of this misguided loyalty. True loyalty means we would respectfully, honestly engage them, demonstrating our Lord's servant heart. doesn't mean we won't speak out, but it means that we speak out respectfully and we do it out of a motive of love, never condemnation. Because Jesus came into this world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be Saved. Now I am completely out of time. I always do this. I thought I'd do better than I did last hour, but I haven't. I always get excited about the first stuff, and then I don't have time for the last stuff. But let me just read the last section. I have a compulsion to get through the entire section. And I'll try to articulate for you what I think is the one main point. Starting with verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but... First, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Okay, there's a lot of stuff here. But I think the, the, the main point revolves around that little word, but. Now, they all want to follow Jesus, but. There, there's something interfering. There's some reason that it's not right now. This isn't quite the right time. For the first guy, he's a little worried about the financial impact. For the one who wants to bury his father, realize his father probably wasn't dead. He's saying, I I just need to go back and be with my family and I'll follow you someday after my father is older and, and, and has passed away. There's always some reason why now isn't the right time. Now isn't the time. So Jesus isn't encouraging us to be irresponsible in our family obligations. He's not encouraging us to just not show up at home one day and, and treat our family like that. The issue is that word, but. I will follow you, but. See, our Lord's call is without ifs, ands, or buts. Let me ask you to think about this. How would you finish that sentence? Lord, I will follow you, but, see, the way of the kingdom is letting go of those things that hold us back, those things that, 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 that cause us to keep putting it off. Well, what Jesus is doing 
again, is preparing the disciples to be leaders of his underground. This section had to do with recruiting. We need to tell people clearly, openly, that our Lord's call is unconditional. We don't serve them or the kingdom by softening that. Sure, we need to tell them of his love, of his grace, of his mercy and wisdom. We need to tell them that he is the truth. He is the light. He is the only way to life. But we also need to be clear that his call is unconditional. His requirement is absolute surrender. Like I said, this is the beginning of the basic training for the disciples. And as we study through this, we're getting our basic training as well. I was never in the military. I never had to go through basic. But my understanding is that what they do in basic is they break down your old way of thinking. They break down your old identity. They break down your old way of behaving so that they can replace it with the new, the army way or the marine way or Whatever way. That's exactly what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He is breaking down their old way of thinking about the kingdom, about following him. Their old way of measuring greatness or creating an identity for themselves. He's breaking all that down so he can replace it with the new. We are in the kingdom and we need to learn the kingdom ways. That's what he's been doing for us i got to tell you that that process is going to be no more or no less painful, no more pain-free than it was for the disciples. It was very confusing. And as we walk with our Lord and He doesn't do what we think He should do, He doesn't say what we think He should say, it's hard and it's confusing. But that's exactly what He's doing. We need to realize that that is what He's doing. He's breaking down our old ways of thinking and acting so that he can replace it with the new. Well, let's pray. Lord, we uh, do so easily just fall into the world's way of thinking, of looking at each other, of ranking each other, seeing who we're above and who we're below, rather than realizing that we have the privilege of just serving, regardless of where we are. Lord, I do pray that you would take us through the painful process of breaking down our measures of greatness, our desire to impress, our desire to be independently competent, to, to be able to handle it ourselves and replace it with the way of the cross, with the way of the kingdom, with your way. Lord, as we go over these stories again this week and think about them, just to... Show us where we need to face these truths, where we need to die to depending on ourselves, to impressing others, to to our status, to our sense that we're the in-group, to our uh, condemnation of our society, rather than expressing your love. Lord, teach us. Train us. Be patient with us. We need it. You know that. But don't stop training us, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.